Hello and welcome to A Cinematic Journey, where we discuss the themes, scenes, and elements of the movies that we love. Yes, we do. And of course, I am Peter Billingsley alongside... My name is Nick Shank. The great Nick Shank. Uh, excited to be here with you today, buddy. Yeah, me too. Merry Christmas. Um, so let's get into it. Let's uh, dive in. We're talking about a movie today that Tim Burton nearly directed. And that the rights holder made the biggest Hollywood stars and filmmakers pitch her in her home. And the sets in this movie required 11 sound stages to create the world of this colorful film. And the lead actor required a CIA operative to help calm his nerves during the two and a half hour daily makeup application. And of course the movie is... How the Grinch Stole Christmas. <laughs> How the Grinch Stole Christmas. So they want to get to know me, do they? They want to spend a little quality time with the Grinch. I guess I could use a little social interaction. So obviously based on the iconic book um, written by Dr. Seuss. Yeah, we're in Whoville and mm -hmm. they're, they're hooing it up as who's uh, do. The who's do, yeah. You see sort of this idyllic small town, but it is in the throes of this passion of this Christmas and it's not exactly for maybe the right reasons. It's fun, but there's a clear effort to establish this commercialism at Christmas. Christmas to them is like a drug. They're like meth addicts for Christmas. And we see all <laughs> yeah. this commercialism and all this. Close-ups of money and people pushing each other to get to gifts. There's a strong emphasis on presents. Absolutely. And maybe the more superficial aspects of Christmas. But there's also a character named Cindy Lou. She's um, the only one seemingly not drowning in the superficial aspects of Christmas. But then she, you see this little letter that she's going to write to Santa and she says, I don't even know what present to ask for. She's hoping and feeling that there's more meaning to Christmas than just gifts. She's having a crisis. That's right. She's, she's having a crisis at six. And then on top of all this, up on the mountain is this unstable recluse who <laughs> lives in this garbage strewn cave and who hates the Who's and he hates their love of Christmas. And we see through an x-ray that perhaps this is you know, not just Christmas, but his heart is two sizes too small. Right. And that's symbolic of obviously somebody who maybe doesn't have as much love or light in their life. Obviously, the heart is the metaphor for decisions and courage and all sorts of other things. Absolutely. The unique thing about this movie in the setup, and yes, it's long, there's also an origin story to the Grinch. We go back in time and see him as a schoolboy, and it's kind of this whole thing of why he became the Grinch. He was made fun of in school. He had a beard. He tried to shave it off. He cut his face. And this is what motivates the Grinch to be angry, live in solitude, and run up to his trash mountain. Yep. Finally, after close to an hour, leads us into the uh, central conflict of this movie. Let's take a look. Blast you! <laughs> and the more the Grinch thought of what Christmas would bring, the more the Grinch thought, I must stop this whole thing. I, for year after year, I've put up with it now. I must stop this Christmas from coming. But how? And there you have it. The Grinch is hellbent on ruining Christmas for the Who's. Right. And can, making sure that it simply does not happen. Can he destroy Christmas? Yeah, and that's really the question. Can he destroy Christmas? The pressure's on. Let's step back and see how this movie came to be, because one of the things I remember Dr. Seuss had said was that he did not want his books to be made into movies. And there was a resistance to this, but after he passed away... After he passed away, his widow, um, Audrey Gazel, 
because it was Theodore Gazel's Dr. Seuss. It's funny because like this sweet old widow who is not just protective of the family legacy, but in reality, she was a shrewd ducks in a row, savvy as shit, um, stone cold business person. And so when he, you know, he his wife of 23 years after right. he died, decided to sell the rights to the IP and she had very specific stipulations. So she... It's going to make this sale. And obviously this is a big book and books get sold in Hollywood all the time, yeah, they get, right? There's auctions. You hear of people competing. You might read stories of- They get sold before they're- That's right. Pilot. Oh, this studio often, exactly right, before they're published or this movie star kind of won out the rights to this or this production company, director, studio. But this is pretty much unheard of. And listen, if you have a big IP, you have a list of maybe some demands. You can sell your book for a high price, maybe have some influence on- who participates, but honestly, not much. It's surprising how little some of these people who write these books get paid until they're Grissom or something like that. Right. And even when Grisham does it, he gets his check. He might have, uh, might be able to say, hey, please don't use this plot line or something. But that's really about it. So right. let's go through the list of demands that, that Audrey Geisel yeah. lists to Hollywood to say, if you want to make the Grinch how the Grinch Stole Christmas into a movie. Here's what you're going to have to do. Number one, right off the bat, I want at least five million for the rights, which is huge. And this is probably this was going down in the late '90s. Right. She wanted four percent of the box office gross. So gross. So you, everyone's heard of net profits. We've heard of actors complaining. I never got my net profits. That's true. Most movies don't show a profit on paper, like most businesses don't. A gross profit is when you give a dollar at the box office to buy your ticket. She's getting 4% of that. She's getting four cents of every single dollar spent. No matter if it bombs or not. Period. No matter how big the budget is, no matter if it bombs, exactly right. Four cents on the dollar collected, which is unheard of. There's, you can count them on one hand, like kind of guys that get. Who might be who? Guys or gals that get gross participation in movies and they're massive movie stars or massive producers. Um, could you name a couple? Like, who do you think gets that gross? It's part? like the level of Spielberg is a director, Tom Cruise is an actor. So it's the elite. Um, it's the elite, elite, elite can get the gross corridor. All right. So she gets $5 million for the rights, 4% of the gross box office, 50% of all merchandising. Which is nuts because a lot of these movies, sometimes you say, okay, if we don't quite get back in the box office, we'll sell a lot of toys and we can make it up. But now they're giving away half of that. Half of that, which is we're talking from Happy Meals or... Anything. Toys. Exactly. She insisted on 70% of the book tie-ins. So any new material from this, she insisted it had to have an A-list actor. She insisted that the director and the writer be in the million dollar club, which means they've made 1 million on a previous project. Right. Which is a small pool. Uh, it's a small pool. She had to have approval of all this, um, and she could handpick both. Plus, she had veto power <laughs> over bananas. all this, which she used repeatedly. And so she, she nixed several producer-director teams and numerous scripts. And we're talking big names like Tom Shadyac, including actors such as Jack Nicholson, Robin Williams, Dustin Hoffman. Um, and again, these people had to come personally to her house to pitch her their, their version team. and their take and their team. And generally, if somebody listed these demands, A, they would be laughed at in Hollywood and no one would show up. But this is a, no pun intended, a who's who of people showing up to her home to pitch. This is how badly people 
wanted it and how much they believed in the IP and the eventual outcome of the movie. They thought this is going to be a hit. We want it. Yeah, I mean, literally a feeding frenzy. And there's a um, still of Jack, of the uh, the drawing. Oh, yeah. And so not everyone was pitching a live action movie. Right. And so they were pitching an animated version kind of based on Jack Nicholson and the way he looked. Which is cool. We'll put this in the show notes, but there's a really cool version of the Grinch Here that we we're go, looking yeah. at that is very much Jack's likeness. And originally, Brian Grazier, who's Ron Howard's partner, went in with Gary Ross to direct, and uh, they were turned down. Uh, they were turned down by Audrey. They just didn't hit them, hit the mark. And Brian called Ron as the story goes and said, look, we still think this is worth pursuing, but we think you're the guy you're going to have to come close this deal. You're a million dollar director. You're great. You have a good sense of story. And so Ron reviewed, said, I don't know that I really have an interest in doing it. Looked back at the book and felt that he had an angle and he had a unique angle. A, he wanted Jim Carrey who came with him, who was as big of a star at the time and yep. is fantastic in this movie. Fantastic. Um, and in reading the book, he said what he wanted to do, the book is around like 60 pages. The special is only like 30 minutes. Sure. So it was going to have to be expanded. Um, and his idea for expanding it was to take the first hour and increase all the setup, right? So that you are, it becomes an origin story to some degree of the Grinch and how he got evil. Um, to expand Whoville and to meet the Grinch when he's young, really from a baby. It starts with him being dropped off as a baby and yep. see him through school. And I think his thing was to understand how this all happened, as he said it, and to do it in a, in a really, really funny way. Right. And he also had mentioned that he liked the point of view of Cindy Lou and, and made her a bigger character. And, and this was presented to Audrey, including Jim. And as the story goes, Jim won her over by spinning her around and doing his bench, his best Grinch face to her. And this won her over. And she liked the idea of expanding the story, really, and kind of writing in reverse and in areas that Dr. Seuss hadn't. Because one could think, oh, okay, we'll just make a longer version of the same beats. We'll fill in some in-between scenes and expand the scenes. I mean, if you were called upon to give, to do this assignment, how would you approach it? This would be a tough assignment for a writer because we all grew up with this. I don't care how old you are or young it's you Dr. are. Right Seuss. It's Dr. You're Seuss. You're kind of rewriting Dr. Seuss. And, you know, the the book we all know and love is really the third act of, the, of this movie. And so all this wasn't Dr. Seuss. Uh, material and so like this is so intimidating because this is the p pinnacle of a lot of families Christmas entertainment oh I watch it with my daughter she loves it she watches them all and then she watches the Halloween one like she loves these little mini Grinch stories and she loves the book but this is sort of sacred ground to write new stuff and then they're having to write which they'd have to do anyway but brand new rhymes try to get the the cadence, the tone, the vernacular, right? The verbiage of Dr. Seuss that's so specific. Right. And and everyone can smell a fish in there because they, this is in your DNA. I mean, if they're adhering to her demands, I got to figure it's somewhat of a blank check, like get it done properly. Right. Make it big, make it cinematic. Uh, we're going to spend money to make money here. Right. But by the same token, it does put pressure on the movie. And with that much, and you're giving up 4% out the gates, so you're only collecting 96 of every dollar, right? Right. That'll get split with the exhibitor. So there's pressure on this movie to succeed for okay. sure. This season, it doesn't matter how you celebrate, as long as you remember to spread some cheer. And with Walmart, you can bring as much holiday joy into your home as the Who's bringing to the entire town of Whoville. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot. Have you seen their 
Over the top decorations. <laughs> Over the top decorations. I have. You can buy gifts for whomever, sorry, or to the Grinchiest Grinch in his old cave. That's right. In fact, if you live in a cave, you can make it look a lot nicer. Yeah, you can get lights, you can get decorations, you get anything you want. And I know you have a lot of friends, right? That's not true, but nevertheless, if I did, I'd go to Walmart and buy all the gifts from them. And I understand I you just bought a Christmas tree at Walmart. Uh, this is true, 100% true. I just bought a Christmas tree at Walmart. It's an amazing tree. We love it. And so from lights to decorations to gifts for all my friends, uh, I've been spending a lot of time at Walmart this holiday season. Well, we have to get you some friends so you can buy them some gifts. Can you buy friends at... <laughs> anyway. can't buy friends at Walmart, but you can get gifts for your friends. You can meet some friends. You can get it all done at walmart.com, in-store, or on the Walmart app. Thousands of gifts and amazing savings at walmart.com. No straight lines. So they get the bid, uh, obviously, and they get going, and they have Jim Carrey, and there's quite a bit of work to be done here. Right. Another cool, and I, I think a cool decision, because when I look at Dr. Seuss books, they feel analog to yeah. me, right? They feel built. They feel mechanical. They don't feel like digital, right? Like what would be sort of digital. Yep. And there was a choice to really build a lot of this stuff, which I think was obviously a good decision, because we're at the point technologically when this movie's made where maybe you could do some CG design sets and, right. you know, it would be a different look and it would take some of the work off your back. But, you know, a lot of this stuff is there's CG components of additions of trees. But when you look at a lot of the sets in this thing, you can see that they're, they're literally built. And a lot of this stuff is built out of foam and block. And another cool decision they did was no straight lines. Like it's very hard to find a straight line anywhere. Yeah, like for example, there's a pencil here. Like not even the pencils are straight. That's They're right. Faithful to the uh, very uh, faithful the to the original. Book. And generally, when when you're in preparation for a movie, the production designer kind of opens his office with the art director, and they start pulling sometimes what we call inspirational images, right, for set designs and things. And you can kind of pull them from anywhere, depending on the look of the movie. So you could pull them from architectural magazines or um, there could be hand drawings and designs, photographs. This one, the filmmakers really just went to all the books. And I think they stayed very disciplined to say, we're going to draw the inspiration from the pages of Dr. Seuss. Like we would pull these books out when we were kids and read them once a year, right? And now I do it for my kids and you can smell the pages. It's like books that have been tucked away for totally. a and a half months and you pull it back out. And so it's it's really interesting to have that in your mind and that smell and that whole kind of set up and flat and then go to what they created. To put it in perspective, they used 11 sound stages to do this. So, you know, on a medium sized movie, you maybe use... You certainly use one to two for your hero sets, and maybe you'd have to add a third for a unique set on the lot. You know, these are big stages, and big some stage. might just do one. So they're commanding 11 stages to build all the pieces and components of this. And it's cool, and it's really, really well done. And you spend a lot of time in this environment um, and a lot of time with just Jim. Right. Um, in scenes and there's a lot of scenes of just and even Cindy Lou like is sort of by herself you have the chaos of downtown who's but a lot of time is just spent with the Grinch so I think having visually appealing sets helps they live in those sets they really do I mean they use the heck out of the sets very cool it was nominated for an Oscar for art direction which you can see why there's a lot of attention to detail paying the price so that kind of takes us to the next thing which is this iconic character Grinch right Yep. So we know how he looks in the books. We know how he looks in the animated shows. How is he going to look as a real life character? And this is not, again, they decided don't go CG, right? He wasn't going to be just an animated right. 
kind of character. You've seen these movies are animated and live action. They're going to build it, and they hire Rick Baker, the best special effects makeup artist in the world, hands down, the most decorated, multiple Oscar. Right. Everyone's seen at least a few movies that he's done. Who at this point in his career had won five Oscars for makeup, including... Men in Black, The Nutty Professor, Ed Wood. Harry and the Hendersons and An American Werewolf in London. In addition to, go ahead and look him up on IMDb. It just keeps going and going and going. That's right. And it's all quality stuff. Batman, Star Wars. I mean, this is one of the most decorated guys in our business in any department ever. But the decision to go practical comes with um, other ramifications. Right. Because you can't take a suit home. You can't sleep in a suit. A suit doesn't stay on you. You have to put it on in the morning, the makeup, and you have to take it off at night. And that requires a lot of time and a lot of sitting still for the actor. And there's a long history of this and challenges. I think this particular one was probably close to the record, record for Tim Allen talked about this a lot, actually the fat suit in the Santa Claus. And he had real issues and it was a real struggle for him to sit still for that long. And it was a big component piece that he wore. And I spoke to him at length about it and it, it takes a psychological toll on you over time. And it's an incredible challenge to sit still and have people put that suit on you day in and day out. When you produced Iron Man, the first Iron Man, that Donnie was wearing a uh, practical suit at that point? It's a good question. So Favreau had come from, again, similar kind of analog stuff. So Elf was done, force perspective, very few digital effects. We did a movie called Zathura, where he built the ships, they were miniatures. And again, the technology was knocking on the door saying, we can make your life easy. We can do this in a digital environment. He was insistent for the look to have it feel practical. We did do a little bit of digital on Zathura and then again, wanted to build a practical suit for Iron Man. Uh, That was the thought process going in. Um, Stan Winston, who does a lot of the suits, we hired um, Shane Mahan from Stan Winston's company to come in and we learned a hard lesson early that anthropomorphically, meaning how you move, (laughs) you can't, (laughs) he looked like, um, Frankenstein. It, you put all these pieces on, you can't move and it's not sexy. It's not elegant. It's certainly not heroic and it's definitely not super heroic. Right. So suddenly you couldn't do it. And then it was really encumbered. Like how do you get the mask up and it's clunky. So there was a big shift in that where you just literally couldn't execute it. And If you look at the old Iron Man comics, it's interesting because they're like sleek on the elbows, but then you're like, well, how's he bending his arm? You have to put joints at movement points. And it was a real issue. So that movie in the middle of prep shifted to very heavy visual effects to have to solve the suit problem. And we had a couple practical masks that could come up so that Robert could act. And in close-ups, you wouldn't have to do a digital thing around the face, but it was really from here up. And so they built great masks. Um, here you can do it. It just takes work. And so the story goes that Jim, you know, would have to sit. So now they're going to start the movie. You got to sit there and it was approximately two and a half hours to apply this makeup. Right. And so the suit was, uh, yak hair dyed green and sewn into a spandex <laughs> suit, which to make him look hairy. I can't imagine what that's going to weigh. And plus he had a big stomach on him. And then even these hairs, like I just did a beard and 
our movie, mm-hmm. it, they they do individual hairs. Like when it's good, they 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 literally put the hairs on you. So it was two and a half hours, and every he, morning he began to psychologically and emotionally break down. Uh, and he described it as feeling like he was going through torture um, to have to sit still like that for so long. Um, and he's spoken publicly about this. He became temperamental. He was kicking holes in his trailer. It, it's hard to take. I'll, the only thing I can relate to personally, I had to do a bald cap in the Spider-Man movie. It was about an hour and a half. I wanted to rip the makeup chair out. It is really, and this is just on my head, not my face, my body, the whole thing. It was nothing compared to what he went through. And it, it was really hard to sit still. So this became extremely disruptive. There's a great featurette out there that shows how painstaking the makeup process was. So Rick Baker runs the company, does the designs, but you assign someone as your on-set person who would work with Jim Daly. And that was Kazuhiro Tsuji and became too much for Kazuhiro to take, I think, some of the outbursts. And he walked off the show. And this was really an issue because I think they were in love. It's a huge movie. They're in love with the look when they get there but they don't know how they're going to get Jim to agree to over 90 days of production, by the way, 90 day production schedule, which is a big one. Right. Um, you can have, you know, decent sized movies, 45, 50 days. Right. Uh, this is a 90 day movie cause it takes a lot to do this. And so they bring in a CIA operative who specializes in particular, how to train people to go through torture. To endure torture. That's right. So he would train people who might get captured eventually, people who were, you know, had a, had a high level of probability of getting captured to prepare them for waterboarding and other things, which I think they were drawing (laughs) parallels to what Jim was going through in this. And he had some cool techniques, some specific things that he gave him. Part of the theory is to sort of get your mind to separate. So he said he would chain smoke a lot. I don't know if Jim was a smoker or not, but he would chain smoke. The CIA told him right. chain smoke, keep your mind off of it. Yeah, and he had to have a very long cigarette holder to not burn the yak hair. <laughs> right, you don't want to go up. It's a bad <laughs> way to go. You don't want to go up in flames. You could slap yourself. You could punch yourself in the leg. You'd have other people slap you. He said you could have other people walk by. I guess he gave the green light. He's like, hey, man, if you just cruise by the makeup trailer, just give me a whack. And it's all and good. So, I mean, so I'm guessing this is all distraction and avoidance of where you are at this moment. So sometimes music helped him out. And for whatever reason, out of his own lips, Jim Carrey said, <laughs> the Bee Gees is what really helped him somehow go into another Maybe world it didn't help they... the rest of the crew, but it wasn't about them that day. No. It, it maybe was every day it was about Jim. This is when some, and, and this happens, rumors start moving around Hollywood as, as word, you know, Hollywood is big, but it's a small, it's a small town. town. And it loves to gossip. Yep. And it loves to gossip about each other. And friends love to gossip about friends. Um, yeah, that's why I don't have any friends. <laughs> that's when you're better. <laughs> kind of quiet. Your enemies are better friends. <laughs> um, your friends gossip more than your enemies. I remember hearing these rumors that Jim was demanding that there be certain temperatures on the set. Everyone does that. And I heard that he was building tubes to walk through, like um, hallways, that so that they kept it climate regulated. Whether it's true or not true, and certainly people, in my opinion, can kind of set up the world how they want it if they're in a position to do so, but that's yak hair, and that's like wearing a full fur coat. So it would not surprise me, whatever the real reason is, he's trying to, and I think for good reason, set up 
some parameters so he can be successful. Cause then after all this bullshit that you go through, you got to go perform. Right. It's not like you just, then you get to go home. He's like, yeah, I did it. Two and a half hours. Give me a prize. It's like, uh, no dude, you now have 10 hours of acting you have to do. Right. And you're not just doing speeches. He is rolling around and he is as animated as Jim Carrey has ever been. And I think at the peak of this kind of stuff, it's got to read visually and his words yeah. and, and combined. And guess what, Jim? For about 60, 65% of the movie, there's no one else in the scene with you. Right. It's just you talking to yourself, monologuing, oh, I'll tell you what, we'll give you a dog. The dog won't speak, but you'll have something to look at. Right. This movie had a burden on it to be funny as well, because you expect that with Jim. Previous to this, he had done Ace Ventura, The Mask, Dumb and Dumber, Liar, Liar, The Truman Show, all this, mm -hmm. all this acting chops. Yeah, and I would think if it's Grinch, it's checking the children's box, but if you see Jim Carrey's name above the title, you think, oh, funny, right? I know, he's my funny guy. He's great. Right. I always laugh at his movies. It's sort of a thankless job in a way because it's like everyone has their ideas. We are we already know there's a template for the Grinch. And so it's like, you know, Chris Pine playing Captain Kirk. You've got to, you know, please the hardcore <laughs> right. nerds. You right. make it your own and then draw a new audience yep. all at the same time. And I think most fans feel this way about this movie that 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 Jim is really the shining star. Without of this of this film, I mean, he is he is what makes it compelling. What what keeps your interest? What makes it funny? The levels of his performances in this movie are pretty remarkable. I mean, he is going from severely angry to empathetic at times to Cindy Lou to comedic. So of course that's why they brought him in because this is a big expensive movie. Yeah, and he brought it. He got nominated for a Golden Globe for this performance. You are now entering Whoville. Flushing out the Who's, which are, I think, spe specifically thin on purpose, right? They are just, they serve their purpose, but there's not a lot of depth to these things. Cause yeah, like, how did you describe them? They're like, they, ripe, they're ripe for plunder? I think that, yeah, because I was thinking <laughs> like, the Who's, do we want to know more about the Who's? And um, They seem like a tribe that's easy to take over and they're just kind of happy. They it, they kind of deserved a wake up because I mean, it could have gotten a lot worse. Like the, <laughs> anybody could just come in just and, and the who's. And so, um, they were waiting for it. I knew they were trying to stick to the book, but the way they redrew the who's in this yeah. movie and the, the way they uh, created their faces and everything else, it reminds me, uh, it reminds me of that Twilight Zone episode. Oh, oh yes. And so where they took the yes, mask we, up and they were- We have an like, image of that, yes. And so I, whenever I watch this, I kind of can't help but think of this episode. It also reminds me of the other Twilight Zone episode where they're all ugly, remember? And they all have those noses. And then the patient, you they, finally reveal the patient and she's gorgeous, but then the irony is she's ugly in that world. So all right, the ugly people are actually just, beautiful because she's different. She's a human. Yes, exactly. Um, you're right. It, it maybe, maybe it's inspired from that. Something for everyone. So another interesting thing in this movie around comedy where it's sort of this tone and taste, right? You want to find your tone. Cause as you said, well, if I didn't have a kid, I'm not sure if I would go to this movie. Right. This argument ensued, which is often different. The studio I think was pushing for more double entendres. Right. I mean, with a movie with a budget this big, you've got to draw, walk that line to get, you know, obviously this is for kids, but you need to, you know, not just bring in the parents who bring the kids, but other parents and young fans of uh, Jim Carrey and, and, uh, make it accessible for everybody. Yeah, but there's there's two moments that kind of really stand out. Let's take a look at a couple examples of what I'm talking about. Hey honey, our baby's here! 
He looks just like your boss. Okay, so that's one example. And now the Who's are putting their keys in a bowl for like some wild key party. So it's interesting. I don't know that those fit in kind of the rest of the tone of the movie. Yeah, not at all. And we know that uh, Audrey Gazel, the widow of Dr. Seuss, she had nixed some jokes. Mm-hmm. And somehow they either talked her into this or... Now the studio is writing the check. We know generally where... <laughs> right. right. But it's interesting in seeing it. You know when sometimes you're watching a movie and something just is like, man, that doesn't feel yep. right or in the rest of it. And I had read that these were the types of jokes that the studio was pitching. Um, not surprising that when out of the hands of the filmmakers... If that's true, it's the one thing that feels like, oh, this doesn't kind of belong in the movie. I, I totally agree. That's it, it's, You stop for a second. You're like, huh? Why do they do this? <laughs> you totally do. And then I'm watching it with my kid and I'm just waiting for her to go, why is there keys in the bowl or why does it look like the boss? I'm like, I don't, exactly. I don't particularly want to go down this road. Like, why are you even raising the question? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is a kind of a... And interestingly enough, it's not even Jim Carrey. You know what I mean? Like if you're going to give stuff... If you're going to do something provocative, give it, give it to the king. Give it to your quarterback who can pull it off, you know? Absolutely. Nick, who doesn't love free TV? Literally no one. Yeah, especially around the holidays, right? Everyone loves TV yeah. around the holidays. Well, well, you might know that Vizio has TVs with the highest picture quality. Did you know that they have this free streaming service called Watch Free Plus? I did not. Yep, you just connect your TV and it's right there with hundreds of free streaming channels. And it's like having cable, but it's free. Like free, free. It's free. Like free. And apparently they even have a channel that plays 24 straight hours of Christmas movies. I think a lot of people would like that. And you can get your Vizio TV at Walmart. Well, I'll have to get a Christmas sweater and some friends and we can do that. So you can get all this done from one TV that's Vizio. Nailed it. So there's a really funny scene and I'd like to take a look at a moment of it. (laughs) This is when the Grinch is preparing to take over Christmas and is going to enlist the services of his dog Mm -hmm. to dress up as a reindeer and is starting to hatch his plan with the dog. (laughs) All right. You're a reindeer. Here's your motivation. Your name is Rudolph. You're a freak with a red nose and nobody likes you. Then one day, Santa picks you and you save Christmas. Now forget that part. We'll improvise. Just keep it kind of loosey-goosey. You hate Christmas. You're going to steal it. Saving Christmas is a lousy ending. Way too commercial. Action! Brilliant! You reject your own nose because it represents the glitter of commercialism. Why didn't I think of that? Cut, print, check the gate, moving on. (laughs) Rumor is that uh, he was sort of channeling, impersonating, making fun of, having fun with ron howard in that moment so maybe it was an homage, to ron <laughs> it was an homage. well i think the giveaway is he puts on the ball cap a signature for ron that reminds me of um <laughs> dr evil mike myers you know the dr evil story he yeah. based that on lauren michaels yeah i heard that and he said after the movie uh did really well he ran into lauren and lauren said uh the movie's doing well uh, and he said yeah <laughs> oddly complimented but uh, but oddly complimented. pissed off at the same time yeah <laughs> But yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, so he's sort of channeling his inner Ron Howard by going a little bit expressive. There's another cool moment where, you know that trick where you people say you can pull the tablecloth and... Right, I know where you're going with this. This is great. Do we have this clip? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's take a look at this. Okay. (laughs) 
So good. Right. So I think the the design of the scene was he doesn't successfully pull the cloth out. The stuff goes everywhere. Right. It just happened. But again, the great Jim Carrey is able to do the trick, pulls it off. So he runs back in a frame and messes it up. Yeah. I wonder how much of that stuff we don't know about. Cause it's just, this is always happening. hundred percent. Yeah. And uh, he clearly knows how to do the trick. All right. So Hannibal, <laughs> I mean, Anthony Hopkins, Sir yeah. Anthony Hopkins, sure. he's the narrator, which yeah. you, you know, probably figure out right away. Um, a lot of, a lot of narration in this movie, by the way, and effective narration. And he nailed it in one day. I know. That's, How long do you think that, that he was hired to do something like that? Oh, I bet they probably had booked four days, but I'm sure, you know, he said, well, yeah, the payment's the same. He didn't give him a discount. Well, no. narration <laughs> no. is the narration. Nobody's getting a discount. His, his narration is great. Especially not on this movie. No. This is another thing they try to do. Well, we're just, you know, the budget's tight. It's like, no. It's not tight. We no. know what you have. Eleven stages. You paid Audrey nine million dollars. Right, you're Hannibal. paying my rate, and I'm Hannibal Lecter. Write yeah. the check, baby. He was the only one when we were casting uh, Grand Torino. He's the only, my agents shielded me from telling me who said no, so I wouldn't get depressed. And right. it was uh, <laughs> Anthony Hopkins had passed on that, and I was just like, I couldn't imagine Anthony Hopkins doing that. Isn't that it, we, com completely? But isn't it frustrating when you say your agent? You know, Tell me everything. Or the studio, yeah, like, let me know. And, oh, no, 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 you, you don't want to know. It's like, don't protect me from me. I do want to know. I can grow from that. Right. You're just but I think you're going to be gross. You are going to make me more paranoid. And you wonder why people in Hollywood have a reputation of being paranoid, because no one will tell them the truth. Marveling at the Grinch. One thing I always thought about this film was... Um, to me, Deadpool is the Grinch who stole Christmas of Marvel movies, uh, and I and Ryan Ryan Reynolds, whether he knew he did it or not, it's he's. I think there's a very similar vibe to interesting to Grinch, like in the like the tone of the Grinch. We see it a lot now, but we didn't see it 23 years ago or whatever this was, right? right. And so the tone of the Grinch, the winks to the audience, the mugging, the constant comments and insider stuff, breaking the fourth wall, yep. um, the nonstop. Uh, running commentary and the smirkiness and the and snark of the Grinch laughing with us about the genre and about other movies and then crammed with pop reference culture references. There's he's, he you know he brings up bits of commercials and slogans. You see the chariot of fire thing and so totally it's an action movie version of this movie in a weird way. That's it, interesting. It on this character, yeah, for sure. You can, if you think about, it, you can really also you could start to hear Ryan Reynolds loop on all this stuff yeah and it's just the rated r version of it they just go further with it yeah i'm not saying it's a bad thing i'm, I'm think, saying like this really i can't look at one without the thing of the other well it, whether it's subconscious or conscious you know we talk a lot about drawing from your predecessors right and sort of taking elements of what works when you're creating something new and that probably goes in the bucket of that villain or victim there are some criticisms of the movie as well. And yeah. I think one of those is this kind of lengthy hour um, establishing um, and maybe some just sort of difficulty launching onto the plot there. I found myself in rewatching the movie thinking for a moment, oh, is Cindy Lou the lead? She has about 18 minutes in the movie. She has, she sings a song where she questions the meaning of Christmas. It reminded me of Wizard of Oz, you know, the I want song from your lead. It sort of almost was built that way. And then I think, oh, well, is this an, is this a cue from the movie that Cindy Lou's the lead and it's not the Grinch, but I don't think that that's the case. Um, just some interesting signposts along the way that when I was watching it was 
trying to find something to glob onto. And once he declares that he's going to destroy Christmas, I'm kind of back in. in the movie. I'm kind of in. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it seems padded out a little bit to give, give them more runway to build out this whole thing. Um, and you know, sometimes it's, you know, it's pretty noisy movie. Right. And so it's a little thin here and there. And without Jim Carrey, it kind of, I think it kind of. Yeah, he keeps you very engaged throughout for sure. And you look in the tablecloth and the dog, any of these moments, um, he's worth the price of admission for sure. It makes Absolutely. it worth watching. But the decision to, you know, villain or victim, right? Right. The decision to do the origin story on the Grinch, which, you know, I could argue no one was questioning for the last 60 years since the book's been written. You know, no one was demanding to know the history of the Grinch. We took him as a bad guy. Dr. Seuss presented him as such. But there was a kind of a debate online. Right. And a, and a sort of question online. Is it more enjoyable story um, than the original, knowing that he was just a mean guy who turned good? Or is it more enjoyable to know that he was bullied and then turned mean before he turned back to good? Right. Like, is that in people are... Definitely in different camps on it. I don't know where you land on this. Did you find that to be an element of the movie that you were kind of pumped about? I never um, worried about his backstory because I, he's, you know, he does the ultimate turnaround at the end and it's so satisfying, you know? Um, and so I never really, he's a, he's a monster who lives in a cave. <laughs> yeah. I think he's a monster and he's sort of evil. And I guess it is a question. Do we need to know where that comes from? Or are we just interested in seeing the result? There's a debate online. A lot of people like it. And a lot of people feel like, oh, they kind of didn't need that. Um, didn't need to know that. But it, it was, you know, Ron's choice to build that. Um, well, now we know. What happens to a heart deferred? So the Grinch has stolen the presents. He's stolen the food and he thinks that he has successfully ruined their Christmas. Yep. He thinks he destroyed their Christmas. That's right. And this leads us to the end of conflict. Let's see how this ends. Then the Grinch heard a sound rising over the snow. It started in low, then it started to grow. Huh? Huh? But the sound wasn't sad. Why, this sounded merry. But it was merry, very. Every who down in Whoville, the tall and the small, was singing without any presence at all. He hadn't stopped Christmas from coming. It came. Somehow or other, it came just the same. And the Grinch, with his Grinch feet, ice cold in the snow, stood puzzling and puzzling. How could it be so? It came without ribbons. It came without tags. It came without packages, boxes, or bags. And he puzzled and puzzled till his puzzler was sore. Then the Grinch thought of something he hadn't before. Maybe Christmas. He thought doesn't come from a star. Maybe Christmas 
means a little bit more. Then, well, in Whoville they say that the Grinch's small heart grew three sizes that day. <laughs> well, there you have it. Um, Christmas is saved. I like that Christmas cannot be destroyed. Yep. Right, it's a it's even sort of good versus evil and dark versus light. You're not going to extinguish Christmas no matter how hard you try. And Chris, the Who's find a way to find their own spirit of Christmas even without gifts. It's very classic. It's very satisfying, and it's a nice message. And it's very powerful. And I think there's truth in that. You're not going to extinguish something that's good. And as a result, um, the Grinch himself is affected, and his heart grows. Not back to the two sizes it was it small, it, it, it goes one it. bigger and it grows three, three sizes. sizes. So now he even has, in a sort of fun comedic way, an extra large heart, which is obviously symbolic of now he has love inside him, um, forgiveness, hope, all the you know positive aspects that whether he had them as a as a baby, which this movie kind of explored that he did. He was very sweet as the Grinch. He sort of returned to his full and whole self. Member of the tribe. Stick the landing. So this, um, you know, movie is using strong symbolism, um, certain tropes that are reliable, obviously, and just those good feelings of of warmth and song for Christmas being actualized in this way. And this leads us into the resolution of the movie. So let's see how it all plays out. So he brought back the toys and the food for the feast, and he, he himself, the Grinch. The roast beast. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing like the holidays. Who wants the gizzard? I do. Too late. That'll be mine. So it's satisfying. Right. And it's interesting, a couple things there. Sometimes bad guys go to jail in movies. Maybe sometimes they die. In this case, his heart has changed and he becomes a part of Whoville, the community. He's accepted. He's forgiven them for the grudge that he had and they've forgiven him for trying to ruin Christmas. Yeah, and it's nice. So we've got the, we end on the feast with all hands on deck and the Grinch is front and center. He's part of the Who family. It's a feel-good ending and it, um, it stirs up emotions. These Christmas movies can do this when you stick the ending, when you land it. Um, you leave the movie, I think, with goodwill. You leave the movie feeling good, and you leave the movie excited to spend Christmas with your own family. Yeah, so there you go. It's the how the Grinch stole Christmas. Uh, so let's see how this one stacks up 
Financially, it's impressive. When they brought this movie out, there's approximately $70 million in merchandising deals that they did. So that would be the partnerships with fast food restaurants, toy companies, outdoor advertising, television. You, you partner with big brands to try to integrate and get commercials to play. I felt like I couldn't turn around without seeing an advertisement for this movie when it came out. Oh, yeah. And it's very common. I remember for Home Alone, there was that uh, for pizza, you got a pizza and you got a map to where all the traps were. And, <laughs> so and this good. one was over the top. On yeah, this one they did a lot. Um, I don't blame them. They had a lot of money to collect. Um, and in the good news for them, they did. Uh, this movie um, to date has done $345 million at the box office. And I say to date because a lot of these movies get re-released annually in some small theaters and continue to grow and earn. Yeah, we saw the, as we were doing our research, we saw this was in the theaters around town here in LA. This is top five highest grossing Christmas movies of all time, really. And the others are the two Home Alones and the animated version of Grinch. So this kind of sits, so Grinch and Home Alone um, are of the uh, world beaters at the box office. You have two of each in the top five. Not to mention the DVD sales, which were a big part of this back in the day. Yeah. And I always thought it was interesting how kids' movies, DVD sales were through the roof because you couldn't pirate them or you didn't want to like pirate them right on a Sharpie Grinch and hand it to your kid for th for Christmas. <laughs> you, you had to go you buy, the go buy it. You couldn't just burn the thing. And, and, and they were know. big sellers because they were a babysitter. They could be a 90-minute babysitter for yeah. people. Um, and this was kind of perfect timing of when DVDs were really – you read a number. What, what was the number that you well, saw published? 145 mil in DVD sales in 2001. Right, which so, is, if that's accurate, and if. let me just, I'll, I'll give a final inside baseball here on DVDs. Like, it's one of the hardest pieces of information to get. Box office is reported, and that's accurate. So when you go to Box Office Mojo and it's reported or what's in Variety or The Hollywood Reporter, that's an accurate number. That's the gross total collected by a movie theater. It's really one of the few undisputed numbers in our business. But DVD sales, the studios really try to keep under their vest because some people, and probably Audrey, had a piece, had a little taste of them. And so they don't like to report those numbers because when they do, they're going to have to send out checks. And yep. we know studios don't like to send out checks. They like to collect checks. No, not... I. I uh, as we, well. as we all well know. So um, uh, if that number is accurate, that is a psychotic number because that is nearly half the <laughs> box office number, which is nuts. So is nuts. the movie's very financially successful. It definitely holds up in my polling of people. It comes up maybe not as much as some other movies, but for sure The Grinch comes up um, as a perennial for a lot of people, and I think in particular that I've found that 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 watch it with their kids. Yep, absolutely. It was not on my radar until I had kids. Yeah, that's right. Um, it was on mine. I saw it originally. It was fun to watch again. And um, as always, enjoy breaking these down with you. Yeah. Thank you, my friend. Yeah, Merry Merry, merry Christmas, Christmas and Merry Christmas to all and to all a good night. Yeah, thanks. This was great. Uh, thanks Lots for of fun. everybody. 